0: The Peter Schiff Show. Well, this is my final podcast for 2017. I just uh, watched the U.S. stock markets ring the closing bell for the final time in 2017. And of course, everybody is excited, everybody is optimistic. I spent most of the day just watching the financial coverage, mostly on CNBC, just to see uh, the attitude and the type of coverage that the markets are getting. Of course, it is a record year in the stock market, right? All-time record high in the Dow. In fact, I think this is the first year that the Dow has ever gained 5,000 points in a single year. In fact, the Dow was up every month of 2012. That's never happened before in history. In fact, I think we've gone 14 consecutive months without a decline. And in fact, not only were we up every month, but 2017 represented the lowest year ever of stock market volatility, meaning that even though the market was going up, it barely ever went down. So it never made anybody nervous, right? They kept going up and nobody ever got scared because there was never any kind of shakeout. So to me, this type of unprecedented rise does not happen at the beginning of something. It happens at the end of something. So anybody who believes that 2018 is going to be more of the same really is going to be in for a rude awakening. In fact, I think the final uh, trading day, maybe the final minutes of the day are setting the tone for next year because even though the markets were up uh, every month of this year, They were not up in the final week. The Dow and the S&P were both down this week. In fact, all the decline of the week happened today. And in fact, most of the decline happened in the last 10 or 15 minutes. I mean, the Dow was down about 30 going into the final 15 minutes, and it ended up down 118. Uh, And the Dow was never really positive today. Same with the S&P. All indexes, NASDAQ was down, but it still maintained a gain on the week. In fact, the NASDAQ was the biggest gainer on the year. I forget how much, well over 30% gain, I think, in the NASDAQ. The Dow up maybe 25%, S&P up about 19 So certainly big years. But to me, this is the end of this big bull market. And the the action in the final minutes may be an indication of what is to come. In fact, to me, right, I have not seen this much universal optimism. Everybody agrees the market's going up. The only question is how high and how fast, right? That's what everybody seems to believe. I haven't seen this much optimism on an asset since last year at this time with respect to the U.S. dollar because everybody was bullish on the dollar. Everybody. The dollar had no place to go but up. Remember, the euro, I think when the year ended last year, The euro was down around 105. Everybody said parity is a lock. In fact, we're going to break parity, right? Everybody wanted to short. In fact, the big short, and I talked about it on this podcast. What was the next big short? The Chinese yuan. All these big hedge funds were shorting yuan. It's going to crack, right? It's going to collapse. This is going to make a lot of money. What was I saying a year ago? Go back and listen. I said these trades were going to blow up. I said anybody shorting yuan was going to lose money that the yuan was going to go down. Now, what has happened to the dollar this year? Well, the dollar is down almost 10% for the year. Dollar index, just under 10%. This is the first annual decline that the dollar's had since 2012. So it's the first drop in five years, but it's the biggest drop in 13 years. The last time the dollar was down more than this was 2003 and what happened in 2003 the dollar fell in 2004 five six seven and eight and it didn't stop falling until august of 2008 and the only reason it stopped and of course it was at a record low the dollar index fell from 120 down to about 70 and the only reason it stopped falling was because it was saved by the financial crisis now it's not going to be that lucky the next time There isn't going to be a crisis to save the dollar. The dollar is going to be the crisis. So I think, again, this is the beginning of a multi-year bear market that nobody saw coming at the end of last year or the beginning of this year. And it's the same way nobody sees the problems in the stock market. In fact, if you look at the individual currencies, the euro was up 14% on the year. The next best performer, I think, was a South Korean won that was up about 13% on the year now gold gold was only up about 12 percent this year which means in terms of the euro it was actually down but in terms of most currencies it was up including the dollar but what's significant I think about gold is gold closed above 1300 gold had a strong final week of the year in contrast to the stock market in fact this is the first time gold has closed above 1300 in five years the last time it closed above 1300 was 2012 so this is very significant as far as I'm concerned the only real story I saw about gold on CNBC today was has gold lost its luster and the answer was yes and that basically the coverage was gold lost its luster this year even though it was up 12 percent. apparently that means you've lost your luster but the conclusion of CNBC was well the Fed's going to keep raising rates so gold's not going up but wait a minute the Fed raised rates three times this year And gold went up 12%. So obviously, rate hikes are not an impediment to the gold price going up. But I do agree that a lot of people were not looking at gold because 12% was not a big deal compared to how much stocks went up or certainly compared to how much cryptocurrencies went up. And I'll talk about them again later. Uh, But yes, I think gold was not in the limelight. But I think that is going to change a lot in 2018. In fact, not only was gold breaking out, but so was oil. Oil had a very strong end of the year. Oil prices closed above $60 a barrel. This is the first time this has happened in four years. 2013 was the last time uh, oil prices closed above 60 This is very significant. And it's not just oil and gold. Other commodities, I think copper has just had I mean, 13, 14 days in a row where it was up. I mean, an all-time record. It's never done that. We're at like a three-and-a-half-year high. Look at commodities. We got farm prices out yesterday, 9.1% year-over-year increase in farm prices. Agriculture breaking out, industrial metals breaking out, oil breaking out, gold breaking out. This is the beginning of a major, major bull market in commodities that is coinciding with another major bear market in the dollar. Remember, when the dollar started the bear market in 2003, right, right? Oil was what, 20 bucks, 30 bucks? It rose to 148. Nobody is talking about the possibility of a spectacular rise in oil prices. It's coming. It's coming. I think we're going to go through $80 a barrel next year, uh, $100 a barrel by the following year. If not, maybe we'll hit 100 next year, but maybe maybe we just get to 80 and we go over 100 in 2019. But this is a big deal. Game changer. No one talking about it. The only story I saw today on CNBC, and I'm not making this up about commodities today was a story that they did about whether commodity prices were headed for a crash. Headed for a crash? I mean, they're talking about the fact that commodity prices has just moved up a lot. And so the story is, are they about to crash? I mean, you have commodities coming off all-time record lows, right? If you compare commodities to stocks, they've never been this cheap. So we're coming out of major long-term bear markets where we've built these significant bases. And we finally have a move up, and CNBC is wondering if we're headed for a crash. In the meantime, you've got an aging bull market in stocks, record valuations. We've just had this huge rise, 12 consecutive months in a row, of moving up on hype, on optimism and hype, yet not a single story about, is that market ready for a crash? No, 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 no. They're only worried about the commodity market crashing. And they're not worried about the stock market crashing. Well, obviously, I think the action that we saw in the last final minutes of the year, maybe somebody is starting to worry that 2018 could look a lot different than 2019. I mean, it could be a mirror image. But I do expect the trends to continue that began in the dollar, in commodities, only I think they're going to be a little bit more popular. I think more people, more institutions, more money, is going to be moving into this trade. Now, of course, the best performing asset bar none in 2018 were cryptocurrencies. Right, Bitcoin was up like 1,400 percent, but that's not even close to being the number one performing cryptocurrency. And I'm not even going to get into uh, the various performances of the altcoins. But suffice it to say, this was the year of Bitcoin and the cryptocurrency. And to me. You know, Bitcoin may have been the best performing asset in 2017. I would not be surprised if it was the worst performing asset in 2018. I know that's probably going to get me a lot of thumbs down uh, from this uh, podcast. But, you know, we're at 14000 and change now, about 1,400% increase on the year approximately. Uh, but there's a lot of risk. And I also think, too, that there may be some people uh, that have profits in, in Bitcoin That don't want to sell until next year. In fact, I talked to a client of mine. I didn't even realize that this client was sitting on over $50 million worth of Bitcoin, uh, but he's got them and he's planning on starting to sell. He hasn't sold any (laughs) and he's waiting until next year to begin his sales. I mean, maybe he wanted to push his capital gains taxes into the following year. He's going to be paying his taxes, but he had a $50 million. Uh, he, was my, he used to mine them. He started off as a miner, and then when it got too expensive to mine from his you know, home computer, whatever he was using, he gave it up. But you know, So most of the Bitcoins he didn't even buy, uh, and he's got $50 million worth of them. But there may be other people that have the same intention. Hey, let me sell in the new year, postpone the tax consequences. Look, this is a very, very thin market. There is not a lot of volume you know, beneath the surface relative to the overall market cap. So I think that this could end up being one of the biggest or probably the worst performing uh, market, especially if I'm right on this gold breakout. Because if gold really moves and is no longer you know, losing its luster, but regaining its luster, if people start to notice gold, then that is going to take some of the, uh, the impetus away from the cryptocurrencies. In fact, I think the fact that gold hasn't gone up, again, Look at the euro, euro up 14% this year, gold only up 12%. So in terms of euros, if you're a European, gold went down this year, but not Bitcoin. Bitcoin went through the roof. So if you're in Europe and you were worried about inflation, you weren't getting much help out of the gold market, but you were getting a lot of help out of the cryptocurrencies. But if we start to see gold breaking out across all currencies, we break through 1,400, 1,500, and all of a sudden people start talking gold again. That is going to steal a lot of thunder away from these cryptocurrencies. And, you know, what, it's not going to take a lot in order to move the market. In fact, one of the ironies about it, you know, I was watching the, again. They talked a lot about Bitcoin on CNBC today, much more than they talked about gold or commodities. You know, they barely mentioned those. And, you know, they talked about Bitcoin nonstop. But it's interesting that a lot of the guests were talking about how there's going to be a lot more regulation on Bitcoin next year. And everybody thought that was a good thing that it was going to be better for Bitcoin because it's going to make it, you know, it'll have more appeal to institutions and hedge funds. It's, you know, it's so it's going to make it better and safer because they were saying maybe people don't want to invest in it because there's not enough regulation. They're worried about fraud or theft or something going wrong. But once the government comes in and puts all the regulations on it, then that's going to make it more palatable and more acceptable. To investors, but the problem is that destroys the original uh, reason that the early adopters were buying it. I mean, that was the appeal of Bitcoin—that it wasn't regulated, that you can get out from under all this government regulation, that you can transfer money around the world without having to deal with the banks and all the regulation. That was its appeal—you were getting away from the regulation. But now, in order to appeal to these big investors that are needed to keep the pyramid going, right, to get more people involved so the bubble gets bigger and bigger they have to take away everything that made it attractive originally and and now to make it attractive for an investment but what is its purpose if it's not a medium of exchange if you can't use it to bypass government regulation right if it's not the solution to the problem of big government and fiat currencies and regulation then what is it it's nothing that is the problem but nobody seems to be able to connect those dots uh, on cnbc but on a you know the, a bigger uh, uh, point here of what is happening, I think that what is about to happen and what I can see with the movement in the dollar, movement in commodities, this is finally the beginning of what I have been you know uh, forecasting and warning about for years. This is it. You know, inflation has broken out. If you look at the U.S., the U.K., Canada you're getting the highest inflation readings we've had in six years, right? The official numbers. But this is the beginning. I remember, you know, when I was talking back in 2010 and 2011, I was up on CNBC, you know, back when they still had me on. And I was warning about hyperinflation and how we were going to have high inflation because of quantitative easing and 0% interest rates. And after several years of it not happening, at least you know, not in a way that you would see it in consumer prices and ignoring what was happening to financial assets, right? Everybody was saying, oh, look, Peter Schiff was wrong or anybody was wrong who was worried about inflation or hyperinflation. I mean, Paul Krugman was writing columns, you know, (coughs) calling me out on how wrong I was. Look, Peter Schiff said there'd be inflation and look, there's no inflation. There was inflation. The inflation was the creation of all the money. That is the definition of inflation. A consequence of that inflation is that prices go up. And I was right about my forecast about what would happen to consumer prices. Where I was wrong was in underestimating the delay, how long it would take between the Fed creating all the inflation and the inflation showing up in measured consumer prices, commodities and things like that. I had no idea that it would take so long. But you know what? Because it took this long, it's going to be that much worse, right? Because the Fed, as it kept creating inflation and didn't see the results in consumer prices, it kept creating more and more, right? It, this is the perfect example of the man in the shower, which may be the only thing I remember that I actually learned in an econ course at UC Berkeley. And I think I've given this analogy on this podcast, but in case you didn't hear it, it goes like this, right? When you go into the shower, you get in there and the water's too cold. So you turn it up, you turn up the hot a little bit, right? And then it's still too cold. So you turn up the hot a little bit more, and then it's still too cold. And so you keep turning up the hot. And every time you do it, the temperature is still not warm enough. And so you keep turning it up, right? And then all of a sudden, there's scalding hot water and you burned yourself. Why? Because you underestimated the lag, right? You turn the knob. And then you didn't immediately get warmer, so you turned it again. And had you been more patient and waited, then you would have realized that you, know, you had already turned it up enough. That's what happens with the Fed and monetary policy, right? It creates some inflation, prints some money, lowers interest rates, and then looks and sees what happens to consumer prices. And if they're not going up, OK, we could print some more. And, and they keep looking, and, the, and then they print some more. And then all of a sudden, right, after years and years and years of printing and not seeing any inflation in these official measures, then all of a sudden, it's a huge increase. And it's like scalding hot water. They burn themselves. And the point is, because this lag has been so long, the Fed has created so much more inflation than I ever thought possible. Remember, when when I wrote the book, right, when I wrote Crash Proof, um, My thesis was very simple. The Fed had inflated a bubble. They kept interest rates too low, right? As a result, we had a housing bubble. I said the housing bubble would pop, right? Real estate prices would go down. That would cause bank uh, failures. Loans would go bad. Fannie and Freddie would go bankrupt. We'd have a credit crunch. We'd go into a recession. It'd be the worst recession since the Great Depression. We'd have double-digit unemployment, trillion-dollar deficits. All that stuff happened. Then I said the Fed will respond to that by slashing interest rates and printing a bunch of money, check, check, right? And that would be an effort to reflate the bubbles in stocks and real estate, right? And then as a result of all the money they would create to reflate those bubbles, the dollar would collapse. And that was going to cause the crash and all the bad things were going to happen as a result of that. That was ultimately going to force interest rates up and we're going to have this horrible uh, recession with a dollar crisis. That's the only thing that hasn't happened yet. But now that's going to happen. And it's going to happen even worse than had it happened earlier. Because remember, I thought they were going to try to reflate the stock market bubble and the real estate bubble. I didn't realize that they would succeed. And they exceeded beyond any, you know, or expectations because they actually created bubbles that were bigger than the ones that popped. I never would have thought they would have been able to get away with that. But they did. So they didn't just try to reflate the bubbles. They succeeded. They made them even bigger. And now when they pop this time, that's it, right? There's nothing. We're finally going to be dealing with the inflation that was unleashed you know, when they tried to reflate these bubbles. They're not going to be able to create more inflation to try to blow up an even bigger bubble than this one. So this is the end of it, right? Their bubble-blowing days are over. And this is the beginning. This is the breakout year. This is the breakout year in foreign currencies or the breakdown in the dollar, the breakout in gold, the breakout in commodities, and the euphoric top in the stock market, right? And what's going to happen now? Investors and voters are going to be disappointed that the market fades, that the economy uh, rolls over. They're going to be taking down their growth estimates. Why did growth pick up In the second half of this year, part of it was the optimism over the tax cuts. Part of it was money spent because of the storms, the hurricanes, the floods, the fires. I mean, all this stuff distorted GDP numbers. Well, all that noise is going to come out in the first quarter, second quarter. We're not going to get the growth that people expect. Meanwhile, we're going to get rising consumer prices, more pressure on interest rates. All this is going to be slowing down the economy. And all these high expectations are not going to be met. Voters are going to be frustrated. Investors are going to be frustrated. The Republicans could get clobbered in November. The Democrats could retake the House and the Senate, right, and have complete control of Congress, especially if we are in a recession, because Trump and the Republicans are going to own the bear market and they're going to own the recession, right? Whether it starts before the midterm elections or after, they're going to be dealing with it. And I believe if the recession starts before the 2018 election, we'll still be in it during the 2020 election. And you know what that means, right? That means massive ha- tax hikes are coming in 2021. Uh, so people had better enjoy the tax cuts while they can because they're not going to last. You know, on a final note, and of course it's it's a bit bittersweet, uh, but I think one of the best indicators that I've ever seen of this change is what I've observed among my own clients, long-term clients, because this year, 2018, I think we had more clients close their accounts in this year than in any other year in the history of the firm, uh, and I think we opened up fewer new accounts than we've ever done. So we're not attracting new customers, and we're losing existing customers at the fastest rate, and it's not that our performance was bad this year. In fact, you know, our accounts did extremely well this year. They did very well last year. In fact, most of our strategies over the last two years actually beat the S&P. But the problem is they didn't beat the S&P over the last four or five years. And the reason for that was the big drop that we had in 2014 and 2015. That's when the dollar took off. That's when you had the surge in the dollar. You had the collapse in gold. You had the collapse in oil. And that brought our accounts down. Now, we've just begun reversing those moves. And I think we'll complete the reversal next year. And then I think the dollar is going to end up falling a lot more than, you know, it's just, it's not just going to surrender its gains. It's going to lose a lot more than where it started. And you're going to see the same thing in, in commodities. So I do think maybe by the end of next year, if, if people following my strategy or my clients look back on the previous five years, at that point, they find that they're actually better uh, than they would have been had they been in the U.S. stock market particularly if we end up getting a decline next year in the U.S. stock market, which wouldn't, you know, surprise me at all. In fact, we may even go into a bear market next year in U.S. stocks. But the point is that you have people throwing in the towel on this strategy, and as a contrarian indicator, it is a fantastic indicator because oftentimes retail investors are their own worst enemy. And I talk to all the people, all my clients, who are closing their accounts, and I asked them what they're going to be doing with the money, and almost all of them are putting it in the U.S. stock market. Some people are saying, well, I'm going to put it in a combination of U.S. stocks and foreign stocks, but they want to move away from my strategy of international investing and focusing on certain markets and commodities and take a more conventional approach uh, in the U.S. stock market. Now, they had no interest in doing that two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, five years ago, absolutely none. But now, all of a sudden, with all the media, all the hype, they talk to their local broker, and they talk about how the U.S. stock market's going up and how great everything is. And now they all want to pile into the U.S. stock market. And part of it is political, right? Because almost all these clients are Republicans. They were very negative on the stock market when uh, Barack Obama was president. So they were very happy to be invested internationally. But now that Trump is president, they're all optimistic on the stock market economy and they want to be invested in the United States. This is a disaster. The last time this happened was when Bush was elected. What happened to the stock market under George Bush? Anybody who sat out the stock market under Bill Clinton because he was a Democrat missed out on a huge run. And anybody who bought into the U.S. stock market when George Bush was elected because he was a Republican lost their ass. The market did lousy under Bush. Bush cut taxes. He had a tax holiday repatriation. He cut corporate taxes, right? He slashed the tax on corporate dividends. He did all the same stuff that Trump is doing. And he ran up the deficit in the process. But the problem was he inherited a bubble. Well, Trump's inherited a bigger bubble. But now you have clients making the same mistake. And I had clients that were doing this to me. I remember I had clients in, in 2001 because uh bush was elected that you know wanted to be in the u.s stock market and they gave up on my strategy just before a huge huge multi-year run now i didn't have nearly as many clients back then as i do now but this is the same thing playing out on a much bigger scale and you know it's very frustrating because when you know clients when you know they're they're doing this i try to talk them out of it and sometimes i succeed but more often than not i've been failing And it is very frustrating to me. I feel badly. I mean, not for me. I mean, yeah, I miss out on some of the the revenue. But, you know, I'm going to make so much money in my own account that all this stuff is noise. I mean, I'm so perfectly positioned right now for what's happening. But, you know, I want uh, clients to benefit too. I mean, I feel a personal responsibility for every one of my clients. And I want them to do the right thing. And I want to do whatever I can to save them. From themselves. I mean, I, I've had them on this journey. I mean, some of these clients who are closing their accounts have been with me for a long time. You know, and you know, we're so close. You know, I mean, I feel like, you know, not that I'm saying I'm like a Moses, but I'm just using an, an example. But it's like I've been I've been taking them on this long journey throughout the through the desert. And we're finally, we're almost in the promised land. I mean, I almost got them there. And they want to go back to Egypt. And I'm like, you know, the promised land is right there. I mean, you can see the trend has changed. You can see what's happened last year, this year. Everything is building. All the ducks are falling into row, right? I am probably more confident now than I've ever been that I've been right. I mean, I feel just like I did about the subprime short in 06. In fact, I think I even feel better about this, about about the fact that I know I've got this right. Yes, it's taken, you know, four or five more years. It's been a long lag, but you know what? Because of that, right, the problems have just gotten that much bigger. So as far as I'm concerned, there's a lot more milk and honey in the promised land, right? And if, you know, if, if, if all my clients aren't going to get there, that just means there's more for me, right? There's going to be more for everybody else. It's, it's going to be more abundant because these problems have grown much larger than anything I could have imagined uh, back in, you know, 05, 06, 07. And I know along the way, because it's taken so long, people begin to doubt it, right? People begin to think there is no promised land. You are going to wander around the desert forever, Right? I, don't, you know, I don't believe you. I'm, go, I'm, going back, I'm going back to Pharaoh, right? <laughs> I, I'm trying to stop them from making that mistake because I know that we're going in the right place. And everything that I'm seeing, everything that's happening now, in fact, you know, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that the, uh, the Chinese Yuan, I, I meant to talk about this earlier and I, I'm going to bring it up now, but that not only was everybody bearish on the Euro, they were bearish on the Yuan, the yuan, the Chinese yuan, is up over 6% this year. This is the biggest gain the yuan has had in nine years. That's how wrong the shorts were. But if you look at a chart of the Chinese yuan, it's about to soar. Or the other way, the dollar is about to tank. I think next year, the dollar is going to fall to an all-time record low against yuan. It's going to break 6, 6-1. to one. It's never been below 6-1. to one. I think it's going to go crashing below that next year. And that's got big implications for commodity prices because that's going to increase the purchasing power of the Chinese dramatically to buy stuff. So commodities, interest rates, it's going to affect the U.S. bond market. It's going to affect the currency market. A lot of stuff's going on. You know, meanwhile, you know we, the trade deficits are getting bigger. They're going to get bigger and bigger, especially as the dollar goes down, right? The dollar goes down. That means our imports cost us more. We have to pay more to import. We still import a lot of oil. That's going to cost more. Who knows? We might have some drumbeats of protectionism, you know, because Trump isn't going to like a soaring uh, trade deficit. So he might start talking tough, which is going to backfire. And of course, what are they also talking about now? Infrastructure, right? Running up the deficits to spend more money on infrastructure. So all this stuff is lining up. Uh, Yes, it's four or five years later than I may have originally thought, but that means the problems are just so much bigger. The dollar is just going to collapse from a much higher level. And I think the odds of hyperinflation, and I always said that hyperinflation was a worst case scenario. I knew we would have very high inflation. And I think we're going to have high inflation. And in fact, I think when 2020 comes around, those elections, the misery index is going to be back. And if you don't know what the misery index was, that was what Reagan used to defeat Jimmy Carter. And I've always said that I thought Trump was going to be Carter in reverse. The misery index is you add unemployment, interest rates and inflation to get the misery of the people. And I think the misery index is going to be back in fashion uh, for the 2020 elections. But when it comes to hyperinflation, the reason I think that we have increases the probability of that worst case scenario is because of the size of the problem. Because what happens is interest rates, right, start to rise. And then the government tries to prevent them from rising, right? We've got this massive, uh, you know, 21 trillion dollar almost national debt the fed keeps talking about shrinking the balance sheet but if you look at the balance sheet it ain't shrinking right and you know they're not spending much time in the pool not getting any shrinkage there but they talk about it right but if the deficits start to build which they will next year with the tax cuts and with everything else that's going on right and if a weak dollar is pushing up Interest rates. I mentioned in a prior podcast that the yield, the hedged yield on euro denominated US treasuries has collapsed to an all time record low. I mean, it's negative. So there's no real demand for treasuries now around the world. And if we're going to run bigger deficits, how is the Fed going to sell bonds in competition with the treasury when there's no buyer? So the Fed is going to have to step up. The Fed's going to have to forget about shrinkage and go back to expansion, go back to QE and so as the fed is buying more bonds and printing more dollars that nobody wants and putting them into the global market and now the dollar is falling faster commodities are rising faster now inflation is picking up faster and now inflation is pushing yields up but now the government needs to, the fed needs to print even more money to suppress them and eventually there may be a call by the treasury department or trump For the Fed to draw a line in the sand, you know, don't let the Treasury yield, the 10-year yield, rise above 3% or 4%, wherever that line is going to be, because nobody can afford it. The government can't afford to pay interest if it goes up. Corporations can't afford to, uh, to pay it. Individuals can't afford to pay it. So now they have to, you know, keep a cap on yields, but they have to print even more money to do it. Right? And now by printing more money, they create more inflation, they create more selling of treasuries, which means they have to print even more money to buy more, to keep rates from falling. And then rates really start to rise on any kind of debt instrument that they're not buying. So now they have to expand their queue. They have to go to the muni bond market, have to go to the corporate bond market. And then, you know, it's bigger and bigger and it's harder and harder for them to turn the spigots off. Because then when they start to stare in the face the possibility of a dollar crisis, a runaway inflation or hyperinflation, if they try to stop it, the collapse is so big because the bubble is so big because it's gone on for so long that they may decide, you know what, we can't do it. And so we end up going to the end, right? We we can't turn, so we go over the cliff and the cliff is hyperinflation. So I think the probability of hyperinflation has elevated now because we've, we've delayed the process so long. We're going to have even higher inflation, certainly, than we would have had before. But the probability of hyperinflation is higher. I don't know how to handicap it. I don't know what it is. But I do know is that if we get it, you better be prepared. Because if you're not, it's too late. But we don't have to bet on hyperinflation, right? If we just have higher inflation and a much weaker dollar, our foreign stocks go way up, gold goes way up, commodities go way up. We make a killing either way. And I'm hoping as an American that we do do the right thing and we don't have hyperinflation because the consequences, the economic and political consequences of that are going to be as horrific. I mean, as bad as the consequences are going to be of stopping hyperinflation, it's even worse if we allow it. Anyway, on that note, let me wish everybody a healthy and happy uh, new year. And I will be back again with more podcasts in 2018 from Puerto Rico by the way my next podcast I'm finally going back to Puerto Rico I haven't been there since Hurricane Maria I will be going back uh, although actually wait a minute I'm not going back till the 4th so I I may be able to get in a a podcast uh, for 2018 before I make my trip back to Puerto Rico but it will be nice to get out of the cold January New England weather and get back into the warm uh, sunshine of uh, Puerto Rico (music) (laughs) Oh, <laughs>